It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. can't sing the lyrics to every word of this song. I will mercifully not subject you to my singing of it. Um, we were we were singing this around my uh, my dad's dining room table on Sunday because I had the good fortune of uh, of seeing the man whose voice you're hearing right now on Thursday perform this live. I've had that privilege a number of times and every time I have had it, there's something magical about it. He's not only an incredible singer, but a terrific radio personality, and by all accounts, maybe the nicest guy in all of show business. So I, as I have alluded, have been on quite a, a Tony Orlando kick of late. We've been playing a lot of his music on this show. We spent Sunday listening to and singing several of his songs. And this is the kind of music that brings people of multiple generations together. When I was together with my family on Sunday, we had people ranging in age from 70 to 23 years old, all enjoying the music of Tony Orlando. And just to show you how ubiquitous Tony Orlando is and the impact he's had on the world, I was at dinner last night, just a few hours ago, at a great restaurant in uh, Midtown called Joe G's, and his picture's on the wall. And I said to the owner of the restaurant, Joe G, I said, what? You know Tony Orlando? And he said, no, 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 I don't know who that guy is. That's Detective Keith Schroeder's cousin. And uh, he, Detective Keith Schroeder comes in here all the time. That's his cousin. I said, no, that's Tony Orlando. Oh, maybe it is, but it's really Keith Schroeder's cousin. I am incredibly pleased to welcome back to the program legendary singer, producer, songwriter, and radio personality uh, heard every Saturday night at 10 p.m., the one and only Tony Orlando. Tony, thanks for staying up late with us. Frank, what a wonderful introduction. Oh, my God. That's right. Kevin Schroeder is my cousin. And of course, oh, he has Kevin, I'm sorry. Talk. I didn't mean he to call him Keith. Talk. Sorry. No, yeah, that's okay. And he has this uh, Cop Talk uh, podcast with WABC. And he's, uh, I'm very proud of him. He's in uh, the police force for 31 years and now uh, has a security uh, a company that handles just about every superstar on the planet. And he's a gentleman, and I'm proud to call him my cousin. And I know that you're the restaurant owner. I heard about that. And, uh, yes, I am his cousin, and that's what counts. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, how great was uh, Cousin Brucey's party on Thursday where you were one of the main attractions? I really enjoyed not only seeing you perform, but I got to meet your daughter for the first time, spend a little time with her. Not only is she incredibly charming, but uh, I must say she's quite beautiful. 
Thank you. My, my, and, you know, she's not only physically beautiful, my daughter Jenny, and thank you for those kind words, but she's one of the kindest, most generous, wonderful people, and she happens to be my daughter. And I say that not as a father, but I say that looking at a person who's grown up in her own right with her own uh, judgment, she makes the best calls. She works on my uh, all of my media, social media. She's in real estate, and she has raised along with me in her lifetime, a lot of money for muscular dystrophy and for veterans. She's been a a right hand for me. She's amazing. That's terrific. Now, one of the things that I was really struck by when you were you were highlighting the life and the career of Cousin Brucey on Thursday is you thanked him for playing such a big role in making so many of your songs hits. You know, it's difficult because when you tune to a lot of music stations these days, you don't even really hear a DJ picking out music. If you're lucky, maybe you hear a robot or a voice track or something. I'm wondering if you can speak to the impact in the 60s, 70s, and 80s specifically that DJs had in making songs hits? Specifically, Cousin Brucey. He came on WABC in 1960, started playing the Top 40 format at this station the year on, and I'm so probably part of that family now, in 1960. Now, in 1960, it was a 50,000-watt 50, station, which means that station could be heard right now. Right now, as we speak, you know this is true, you could be somewhere in Florida and hear WABC, not streaming, but literally through the airways. So that meant Cousin Brucey's show in 1960 was an important tool for making hit records. So record companies would come to, to him he, they would actually play records, and Cousin Brucey would be the person to define, along with the program director, Rick Sklar, as I remember who it was back then. I remember I was 16 years old, mm-hmm. but I do remember Cousin Brucey listening to records going, I think that's a hit. I'm going to put it on my playlist. When the moment he did that, that meant at least 20 other stations on the East Coast were going to follow his lead. So he did. I kid him all the time. I say only God made more stars than Cousin Brucey <laughs> because he was really responsible in his own instinct as a music person what to play. So I'll give you an example. I had a record called Halfway to Paradise. I was 16 years old. It was my first hit record. It was Carol King's first hit record. She was the writer. She was 18. I was 16. Teenagers together, hoping to God that Cousin Brucey would play that record. What happens? That record now puts me in the top 10. What then happens? It opens the door for the follow-up. The follow-up goes to number one, called Bless You. What then happens? I become a name in the record industry. Now, then comes the British invasion. What happens to Tony? He ends up working uh, it was a publishing company with Clive Davis. What was my job was to go back to Brucey to play the songs we had at Columbia Records, <laughs> knowing the power of the arm. But the most important thing, Frank, about this guy is he's never changed. The guy you hear in that radio, you know, he's not just a guy who plays records. He's a man who touches hearts. Oh, no, no question he's, about it. And, and I, I think you could say the same thing about uh, about Tony Orlando, both as a radio personality and uh, and a singer. You know, it's funny. I've read uh, I've read Cousin Brucey's book. I've interviewed Cousin Brucey many times since he's been back. 
uh, on terrestrial radio. I've read your book, which is also called Halfway to Paradise, which I do recommend. It's terrific. You guys have kind of a different take on Murray the K. Cousin Brucie, I guess, didn't get along so well with Murray the K. You you cite Murray the K as being pretty influential, especially in the early days in your career. Wondering if you can give me your take on Murray the K. Well, Murray the K died in my arms. So we'll start there. Murray the K passed away in Tony's arms uh, in California. But not at your hand. I want to re-emphasize that. (laughs) No, in my arms. And he was a very dear friend. And Murray was was a different point of view from Murray the K. Murray was more of an entertainer than he was a music player like Cousin Brucey. Murray was the kind of guy who went out and did the you know, Brooklyn Paramount shows, and in his own right, had a certain kind of entertainment side to him. He was a showman in a big way on stage. Not that Cousin Bruce, he isn't. He is. He's a personality bigger than life. But Murray had all the acronyms of, of a Bobby Darren, for instance, who was his best friend. And he wrote this blast with Bobby Darren, by the way. Murray the K did. So Murray taught me the board says that he was a big instrumental part of me learning what it was to be a showman on stage. Totally different than, than, uh, than Bruce. And I know there was a competitive thing, but that's a good thing. That competition is a good thing. Uh, I, I think competition is a good thing for all of us to have. Oh, it no just question. makes it better and work harder. One of the one of the things that I was a little bit surprised by is the fact that uh, you indicated that you were retiring next year. Now, I mean, you've been at it uh, 60 plus years at this point, Tony. Why hang them up now? Well, you know, look, I started when I was 15 years old. I'm now 79 years old. You know, and like I told my wife, I can still hit the ball. I just can't run the bases. <laughs> and, and basically what that means is the traveling. Today, today to travel, you know, you got, it, it's literally 12 hours no matter where you go. It's a tough, tough road. And I'm just not able to, to keep up with that cut, the side of the, of the performing life. And also, the truth of the matter is, the audiences have changed. The age group has changed. And I don't want to be that guy out there like uh, in Raging Bull. Do you remember that last oh, season sure. Raging Bull? Sure. Where he's sitting in a smoking club and he's talking, Jake LaMotta is talking to five people in the audience. I don't want to go there. I want to leave knowing that I have done my best, leave with as much elegance and class as I possibly can, and thank the good Lord, and especially the people who supported me for 64 years, and thank them and give the younger people a chance to have the blessings that I have had all these years. In the meantime, where can people see you if they're saying, all right, I want to get make sure I get my Tony Orlando fix in the next year before, uh, before you hang him up? Where where are some of the highlights of where you might be performing in the next year? Well, you know, I, I've had a, uh, a residency in, in Las Vegas for 26 years at the South Point Hotel in Las Vegas. And uh, myself, the Righteous Brothers, and of course, Jerry Lewis, when he was alive, that's where he and I did the telephone from, from the South Point. So I will be there in January. From here to January, I'm on the road. Right now, I'm at PNC Park tomorrow afternoon. The Probably, you know, if it doesn't rain, usually when I work, there's about six or seven thousand people there. So I have a, a, a still a loyal 
when you say family of people who come to see me and I enjoy that, I will probably do about 10 shows before the year comes. Then January to the uh, South Point. And then I'm going to close it out March 21st at the Mohegan Sun uh, Arena uh, in Connecticut, which happens to be my favorite of all venues to play. And uh, I know that the uh, the head of uh, that casino, uh, Tom Cantone, is a huge fan of yours. I would venture to say you might be his favorite performer ever. So uh, that's definitely something that people should uh, should check out if they uh, if they're in a position to to get some tickets. That sounds pretty incredible. You know, you talk about uh, appearing, you know, in appealing to people of different ages and how different performers are able to resonate with people of different age groups. You've managed to stay relevant not only by uh, coming up with some really timeless songs, not only Tie Yellow Ribbon and Knock Three Times and Candida, but songs that are still played on the radio today. But in a lot of films that are uh, popular with young people, including a couple of Adam Sandler films, even though they might be silly, like That's My Boy, or even ones that are a little bit less silly, like Sandy Wexler, you've developed a whole generation of newer, younger fans as an actor, as well as as being a singer. (laughs) But it's very funny, because I go through it, you know, I've been blessed to have, during the Tony Orlando and Dawn years, you know, we, we had sold somewhere about 70 million records, singles. Then you're talking about three platinum albums and two gold albums. And I walked through an airport, a 23-year-old guy is walking through the airport. He has no idea who I am. He doesn't even, if I say yellow ribbon, he goes, what is that? He doesn't even know. I say knock three times. I think my grandfather knows it. But if I say, what's up? From the scene of That's My Boy, he goes, oh, yeah, you're the guy that does that movie. It's the funniest thing. My, I told Adam just recently, I said, Adam, you know, my whole career came down to one word. You know, it came down to what's up, you know, from that motion picture. But I, you know, the thing is, is, look, Tie a Yellow Room, imagine you put yourself in my shoes. This record comes out in 1973. That's 50 years ago. 50, okay? It, the first time I sang the song, Frank, was to welcome home our POWs to come be at Cambodia allows at the Cotton Bowl with Bob Hope. 70,000 people were there singing that song the first time I ever, including the POWs on the 50-yard line. Their eyes hadn't even adjusted to daylight yet. And there they are singing this song that I'm singing that becomes a big hit. What does that song do? In the 50 years that that song was released, that song has been responsible for raising hundreds of millions of dollars on veterans' behalfs and causes. It's been a tool. It's been the proudest thing in my life to be able to work with veterans. I just had my 50th anniversary with those very POWs, who, by the way, I reunion with every single year. The 50 straight years we gathered together at the Nixon Library and we hugged each other, 50-year friends, because that song welcomed these heroes home. Nothing, nothing, believe me when I tell you that I will ever do, has had more impact on my soul and my heart and that song written by Larry Brown, Erwin Levine, without them, I mean, I was just the mailman that delivered the letter. But what a letter it's been. Raising for wheelchairs, raising for prosthetics, raising money for uh, uh, 
uh, you know, SUVs that take the wounded back to their homes or take them shopping. It's been an unbelievable thing. Music is a tool literally that has no boundaries. And, you know, the stories you hear from a lot of those POWs, I mean, you think you might have a tough day and then you think you might be tough. You listen to those stories and you really learn what toughness is. I mean, the stories uh, that people like Admiral Stockdale used to tell about what they experienced. I mean, they curl your hair just thinking about what those guys went through. So uh, God bless you for what you did. If people are uh, just tuning in, we're talking with Tony Orlando. If you want to see him within the next year, whether it's in January in Las Vegas, or if it's in uh, March at uh, the Mohegan Sun Arena, or if it's in New Jersey later this afternoon, you can check out his website, TonyOrlando.com. There's a lot of great tour dates on there. You can see when uh, Tony might be in your area. You know, Tony, obviously you were born and raised in New York City, very much a New Yorker, and I can tell a lot of your heart is here. You, You made the transition in terms of living in Branson, Missouri and we're you know lucky to be on a couple of stations in Missouri now and uh, a lot of great people there but I'm wondering how you make that transition from uh, the big city big city life to what a lot of people might be considering a smaller town how has that adjustment been for you well it started out believe it or not as a business decision I got a call from uh, Andy Williams God rest his soul who had a very successful theater in Branson. I remember Branson, Missouri sits more live theater than Broadway. There's I had no idea. Wow. There's a, yeah, there's 140 theaters in Branson, Missouri, no gaming, but it's whole thing is this theater. And so when he asked me to come to Branson, I get to Branson. Who do I see there? I see Willie Nelson. He has a Barbara Mandrell. At the time, she was very hot. She had a theater there. Ray Stevens, mostly country acts, except for Andy. And then Andy said, why don't you open a theater here? And at that time, Vegas was making a transition to Cirque du Soleil. That was what was taking over the town. So most of us performers, truthfully, were thinking, okay, what's our next step? It was just an automatic Yes, let's do this. So I had a 2,000-seat theater there, and I would do, I mean, it was a killer uh, experience work-wise because I was doing two shows a week, two shows a day, 12 shows a week, 400 shows a year from from April to December. And it it was grueling, but it was extremely rewarding. I got a chance to write two plays that did very well and ran for 25 years Christmas show that ran in Atlantic City, Las Vegas, as well as Branson. And it opened up my chance to come back to Broadway and be in Barnum uh, at that time. So Branson was a very um, next step in the career of of my career. And basically it was because of Andy Williams. Once I got there, you know, it was very reminiscent of upstate New York. It had all the feelings of, of the Catskills, which I was working many years for many years. And I said, you know, this feels comfortable to me. And people in Branson to this day say, good morning. How are you? Thank you very much. They have that old tradition uh, of family, you know, God and country. It's alive and well in Branson. And it felt good to me then. 
and it feels even better to me now. But once you're born and raised in New York, like I was on 21st Street in Manhattan, I don't care where you live. You can move to Mars. You're always a New Yorker. Uh, And that's my experience with a lot of people that might have started listening to the show living in New York and then they moved to Florida, Arizona, the Carolinas. They don't uh, they don't lose that New York accent or that New York spirit. That's for sure. No question when you're putting on a play, when you're uh, performing, that um, it requires a lot of energy, a lot of skill. It's a very different skill set doing a radio show on uh, a weekly basis. I've become a big fan of your radio show. I listen just about every Saturday night to at least a portion oh, of it. Thank you. I love Coming the, from you, that's a huge compliment. Well, uh, wait, d- I mean, it's sincere. I love the different theme shows that you do uh, when, when the theme might be fame. The theme might have something to do with Elvis. Last weekend, obviously, the theme had something to do with Cousin Brucey. How, do, how have you made that transition, Tony? I know you did a lot of uh, great television work back in the day. How have you made that transition from stage and TV screen to the world of radio? Was it seamless? Did it take a little bit of work? How did you manage that? Well, first of all, you know, radio has been a big part of my life because you spend a lot of time on radio, course, not hosting radio. But Brucey gave me a chance when he was at CBS FM for a while. He took the day off. He wasn't feeling well. And he called me and he said, would you come and do the show? Well, of course, at that time, he was doing five hours. He does four hours now. I had no idea what five hours was like. And what this guy was doing five hours every single day, not just once a week. But that was a big learning curve for me, that show. i never forget it. I'll never forget how much I learned. When John Casamitidis called me and said, would you, during the pandemic, would you to come and do radio for us? I thought I was doing John a favor because I love him. We you know he's a a good Greek brother of mine, I figured, okay, whatever I can do, I'll do. I never thought that I'd be staying with the station. I thought I was just filling in for, for the two hours. They didn't have anybody after Brucey, my buddy, my brother, you know, and he has been a great teacher. I mean, if you're going to learn how to do radio, he's not a bad guy to turn to. And he'll call me after a show and he'll talk about, you know, how to approach an interview, which I think what you're doing right now is really the toughest thing for me. I've always been the interviewee. I've never been the interviewer. And being the interviewer is harder because you ask the question and wait for the answer. When you're the interviewee, you just go talk and talk on and on like I am right now, it's in your ear. But the, the truth is, is radio is great. I used to, it's an old expression, theater of the mind. Mm-hmm. And, and what I love doing is creating visions for people at home. So what does the themes idea do for me? It's really a, a show. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a storyline to it. So they're kind of radio documentaries. It's not like flipping records, like I want to play this artist. That To me, I enjoy creating the storyline of that two hours. It was done by accident. It was just something I do as a writer, you know, uh, just writing shows and putting together a set list or writing the TV comedy shows I did with the, with the show on CBS. So it, it, it allowed me to create an idea, a concept. So there is a beginning and every song tells a story. You know, Sinatra told me a long time ago, 
I never forget this. He said, Tony, remember something. If people either know about you or you're going to let them know about you. It's not just one song after the other. It's not like I'll open with this because it's up-tempo. No. Each song follows a theme, tells a story till you get to that closure. And when he hit New York, New York, you know you arrived in land at LaGuardia. So the truth is, all of these experiences in the past helped me, including the great, the great, and I mean great, cousin Bruce Morrow. You know, in listening to you now, Tony, I'm struck by the the same feeling that I have when I listen to you on the radio, when I hear you uh, sing a song, when I see you tell a story on stage before a live crowd, or when I read your book, which is really what a, what a gifted storyteller you are, and how no matter the medium, you're able to really tell quite a story. Now, I'd love to give you full credit for that, but I, I understand that uh, former Secretary of State Colin Powell actually gave you a, a big piece of advice on telling stories, including autobiographies, when you asked him, didn't he? He did. As a matter of fact, if you read his uh, autobiography, he you talk about someone opening up the story of his life. He talks about growing up in Harlem. I mean, coming at, in from a you know that the Caribbean island to Harlem and growing up in the city of New York, you never think of him being one of the guys on the corner. And he was. And when I read that book, I, I related to him, not as this gigantic political uh, hero. Uh, and, and that's what he was and still is in my opinion. But Powell was a very, very real believer in telling the story. So if you ever saw him speak, he was a lesson in that. And I learned so much from from uh, from Colonel Powell. He was uh, Colin Powell was a very good giving man. Uh, Tony, I could keep you all day, uh, but I know you have to perform this afternoon. But a couple of quick things I want to ask you before we run out of time. One, you know, we hear a lot about polarization in this country today, division in this country today. There have been other eras in American history that were um, just rife with uh, all sorts of polarization where people seemed very divided. I think somebody that did a great deal to help America move past a very polarizing chapter in his history in its history was president gerald ford both his actions in the white house and then certainly as an elder statesman and an ex-president you had the opportunity to get to know the fords fairly well is gerald ford underrated as a president and a statesman as far as you're concerned i don't know if i'm qualified to answer that properly but i can give you my personal opinion um remember that he did not win the election when he became president I'll share a story with you about President Ford myself. If you don't, if you don't, if you have the time, I'll, I'll make it as quick sure. as possible. But I did a state dinner for him, and <clears throat> it's two o'clock in the morning, and he says to me, "Tony, have you ever been to the Oval Office?" I was like, "Yeah, I make it up. I'm there all the time. No, I've never <laughs> been, Mr. President." He said, "Come on, come into the Oval Office," and we sat down. And there he is, the president of the United States, and me all by myself in the Oval Office. And he looks at me and he said to me, Tony, I can I ask a question? Are you going to vote for me? And I was stunned by that. I, I, I looked and I said, Mr. President, I'm just one vote. Come on. I saw really easy. No, no, no. You're not 
not just one vote. You have 36 million people every week watching you. You're an important part of this election. I just like to know, am I making any strides with you? Are you going to vote for me? And I thought to myself, do I lie or do I tell the truth? And I said, Mr. President, I can't pardon the partner. Now, remember, he was pardoning. Right, Nixon. Nixon. And at that time, I was full-blooded, 100% liberal Democrat. Now I'm an independent. So I looked at him and I, I said, I can't lie. I, I can't pardon the partner. He goes, I understand. He said, are you a Democrat? I said, well, yeah. I said, I'm a Kennedy kid. He said, hang on a second. And he goes down to the drawer and he pulls out a pin. It says, Democrat for Ford button. And he answered to me. He said, let me ask you a question. If you knew somebody for 36 years, you knew their family and you were friends for 36 years, and they got in trouble, would you try to help them? He said, absolutely. Would it be the human thing to do? I said, absolutely. He said, and if you were president of the United States and you weren't elected, you were put into this seat. And there's this dark cloud over this White House. And you know that you have to govern. And if we keep this dark cloud over this White House every day, every day, every day, it'll be the news. Will you be able to govern? And I said, no. And would you say that even more important than a friendship with a guy of 36 years is more important to be there for your country? I said, absolutely. He said, that's why I want to know. And I said, when do we start? Wow. When do we go? And it was at that moment I realized where he was coming from. Right, right. It wasn't a front page story. And the other thing that was different than now, Frank, is we didn't have a 24 cycle of news. We only had news starting at 7 o'clock at night, <laughs> and Walter Cronkite ended at 7.30. It, you've got you've got 24 hours on television, CNN, MSNBC, Fox. It never had that. Right. And, that. and you and you wonder how much of that is actually news. Right. And how much is uh, is propaganda designed to get people hyped up, hating their political exactly. adversary? Tony, I'm going to have to end it there. But uh, I do want to encourage people not only to try and see you before uh, that you, your swan song at the Mohegan Sun Arena. But if they haven't listened to you on the radio, they should absolutely check you out Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. And if they want to read a great book, uh, check out the book Halfway to Paradise. It's available on Amazon and a lot of other places books are sold. Thank Tony, you. maybe we could do a Thank you for having me on, Frank. I, if I may say, on October 29th to 28th, I've been being inducted into New Jersey Hall of Fame. Uh, there's a lot of great people in that Sinatra, Whitney Houston, uh, even Thomas Edison, for God's sake, they're giving you that honor. Absolutely. Even the, even the great... Please come to that. Even the great Joe Piscopo. Uh, let's talk again soon, Tony. I, I have a lot of other stuff I'd love to go over with you. Appreciate the, I would the love opportunity. To, and I love your show. Thank you for giving me the, um, the privilege to be on it. Thank you. The great Tony Orlando. If you want to comment, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.